1: The Celtic Bards of Old Ireland inspired Phil Cousineau to ponder the creative potential of the night. He writes, apparently, there is a light that we can find only in the dark, which is the very definition of the inspiration that brings about new thoughts and ideas. He goes on to say, we strive to see in the dark. We hope for light through poems and prayers, and we pay any cost to wedge open a crack between worlds if it means learning one new thing about ourselves. With these words, our guest Phil Cousineau asks us, what can be found in the shadow-fretted night? Today we'll be sharing stories, poems, chants, and song lyrics designed to celebrate the dark side of the moon, our indarkenment rather than our enlightenment. We'll even delve into sharing a virtual cup of tea with our guest, Phil Cousineau. Phil Cousineau is a freelance writer, photographer, art and literary tour leader, creative consultant, a lifelong lover of the night, and an all-around renaissance man. He's published over 30 books and has over 25 documentary film writing credits. His books include Word Catcher, Beyond Forgiveness, Reflections on Atonement, stoking the creative fires and burning the midnight oil illuminating words for the long night's journey into day. He is the consulting editor of the book, The Soul and Spirit of Tea and the documentary film, The Meaning of Tea, and is also host and co-writer of Global Spirit, a nationally broadcast television series. Join us for the next hour as we explore the enchantment of the night with some soulful poems and stories with our guest, Phil Cousineau. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Phil, welcome.
2: Wonderful to be back with you, Justine.
1: (laughs) It's great to have you sitting down with us once more. It's always a pleasure. Phil, you've put together a very eclectic book of poems and stories. One of those stories is from Zorba the Greek. And, you know, Phil, through the years that we've sat with you, I really think of you as kind of a Zorba character because you have maintained a kind of enthusiasm and curiosity about the world. And you continue to share that with us through your many works, through your films, through your books, through through so many ways, your storytelling. So um, I'd love for you to share with our listeners that little piece or part of that piece from Zorba, if you would, to help our listeners know that flavor that I'm talking about.
2: The... F- image of fire in cousin zacchaeus's magnificent book about zorba is really at the heart of my life my creative life it's at the heart of my focus i love the idea that to be a, a good athlete filmmaker writer family man you have to be focused the origin of the word focus is the fireplace. It's the old Latin word for fireplace. That was the focus. And the two have become inseparable for me. As long as I can keep my fire alive, I'm creative. I can inspire other people and continue to be inspired by those who have been on fire throughout history. So every day in order for me to keep going, I will stoke my own fire rather than wait for someone to come into the door and say, here's a Guggenheim grant (laughs) by reading People like Kazantzakis. This is from the great Zorba the Greek. While going down a slope, Zorba tripped on a stone, went rolling downhill. He stopped in amazement, as if he were seeing an astonishing spectacle for the first time in his life. Zorba turned toward me, and in his glance, I saw a slight fright. "'Boss, did you see that?' he said after a while. "'On slopes, stones come alive.'" I didn't say anything, but I felt a deep joy inside me. This is how great visionaries, how great poets see everything as if for the first time. Every morning, they see a new world before their eyes. They do not see a new world, they create it. The universe for Zorba, as for the first human beings, was a splendidly rich vision. Stars touched him. Sea waves crashed on his temples. He lived soil, water, fire, animals, and God without the distorting interference of reason. In the moonlight... I looked at Zorba and admired the flair and the simplicity with which he adapted himself to the world, the way his body and soul became one harmonious entity. In all things, women, bread, mind, sleep, blended instantly and mirthfully with his flesh, and he became Zorba. I had never seen such an amicable accord between a human being and the universe. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's great great thank you for Well that reminds me you you grew up you you grew up on the outskirts of Detroit you know we call it the rust the rust belt and um you in fact worked in one of the auto plants Rouge River plant the original Henry Ford auto plant and uh so I mean from these beginnings kind of like Zorba you know on the side of the the hill and in a little town. So here you are. What was your spark? What was your fire?
2: I grew up a few miles outside of Detroit, right near the railroad tracks where the Wabash cannonball went by our house twice a day. So I had the old Hank Williams groaning, moaning low of the train whistles in my mind as I was growing up. And I also was given a transistor radio when I was young and I listened to the I carried it everywhere. I listened to it late at night, listening to the Tiger ball games from abroad, armed forces radio. The two of those long walks, long runs around Detroit got the mystery of the night into me that I feel like I need to keep stoking every day to stay in touch with that childhood uh, verve for life. But then my family split up, and I had to go to work in a Detroit steel factory to support my mom and my brother and sister while I was going full-time to college. And in those nights, in that period, I was only sleeping two or three hours a day. And I came to love the night, and I've been on that schedule more or less ever since, sleeping just a few hours a night, not out of punishment, not out of self-flagellation, not out of trying to be heroic, but because I do love the day. It's not as if night owls don't love the day, but that's where I get the craft, the skill, my communications in my life that need to be done, the grunt work that has to be done during the day at night things get quiet, they get moody, soulful, the duende rises up. And when I begin to write, then that's where my demons and my angels arise. And Now doing a lot of teaching of creativity over the years, interviewing so many people, I've come to find that I have a lot of company out there. The world has seen many insomniacs. Charles Darwin, uh, Charles uh, Dickens was... Uh, what they call a noctivigator. Have you ever heard that word? No,
1: I did. I saw it in your (laughs) book, but you're great with these words.
2: It's, It's someone who navigates through the night. It's an old description for insomniacs who love to walk the cities. Nietzsche was one, Schopenhauer, H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens. Um, Darwin was an insomniac, all the way up to Charles Bukowski, Virginia Woolf. Many people haunted by the night, but also the visions that come up. Van Gogh, I have a passage of one of his letters here to his brother Theo in which he says, I believe I feel more intensely at night. I see colors more vividly at night. And he's describing the evenings when he's painting the famous epic iconic Starry Starry Night. I read that and I don't feel so alone with my infatuation about the night. I read this wonderful passage from Miles Davis's autobiography in which he answers the question that he got a hundred times where did you find your sound that's a great question that musicians are always asking and you think he's going to give you some kind of theoretical business about music and he says that i used to go with my parents to these old spiritual meetings deep in the back roads of arkansas and all my life i've been trying to get the dark sounds of the backwoods of arkansas into my horn those two anecdotes right there capture, I think, part of the magic of this. We were somehow mysteriously moved. The frisson, the shiver went up our back when we were young. And we need to recapture that again and again and again. And that will fuel creativity for the rest of your life.
1: You know, one of, one of the pieces that you use is from R.B. Morris, Night Train Home. And he talks about a specific light that just absolutely grabbed me, and I, please, please share it, and we'll talk about that.
2: Yes, R.B. Morris is a great friend of mine, a wonderful musician, a playwright, an expert on James Agee, and uh, regarded as one of the great unknown songwriters in America today, a, a brilliant fellow, and he wrote a wonderful piece called Night Train Home, and I'll read a few stanzas of that. I'm in a dark tunnel in the dark of night... During dark times, I cannot tell if my tunnel was made by God or humans until streetlights, bridge, and house, and traffic lights crackle the tree line like pond ice. Then I know that the dark is older than the walls we build against it. I see the lights we hurl like spears of fire at the abyss, falling among our own far-flung troops. I can't sleep. Still... The middle of the night, I guess. Not looking for a clock. I hear trains clanging over rails a mile away. I've got a list of to-dos for the day. Fill out a non-custodial parental form for my daughter's college. Mail books and CDs. Try to do some promotion for an upcoming show. Contact a string of people. About one thing or another, including Europe. A few shows in Ireland. We should break even. You know, it's stuff like that. That's the good stuff. It's nice. It's nice to hear the night birds sing. A concert not many listen to or take in. And yet there's encore after encore, night after night. It's nice to feel the quiet, such as it is, and watch the sky ease itself through a prism of changes, cutting shapes through curtains and blinds across ceilings and walls, like the dreams you left back in bed like the people and places you've known in your life, all your life, all coming to this night.
1: I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's the author of the, the compilation Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey in Today. If you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, philcousineau.net, and that's spelled Phil, P-H-I-L, Cousineau, C-O-U, S-I-N-E-A-U dot net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's the comp- compiler of, and also writer, and he has many pieces of his own in here, Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey into Day. And in Phil, you just read something from uh, R.B. Morris, who's an American writer, musician, and actor. And, uh, you know, when, when you got to the place, and when I read this myself... Um, and watch the sky ease itself through a prism of changes, cutting shapes through curtains and blinds across ceilings and walls, like the dreams you left back in bed, like the people and places you've known in your life, all your life, coming to this night. I just, that that piece just absolutely like a spear into my heart, and it took me back to my childhood where I, I, remembered I haven't thought of this in years remembered the lights moving across my bedroom wall at night coming through the blinds as a car would come down some road nearby and watch those lights move across that ceiling sky it just this is what these these pieces will do for us
2: that's my standard when I'm writing or choosing my own pieces for my own books, but also when I'm collecting pieces for an anthology like this, what stuns me over and over again is how little attention we can pay in life. Many people are afraid of the dark, period, and so they don't pay too much attention. They put the blinders on just to get through the night. There's an atavistic fear in us that's probably a couple of million years old. And then there are those like a Van Gogh or a R.B. Morris here who I know carries notebooks with him when he drives at night. And if he sees something, a starfall, a meteor, hears a sound, he'll pull off to the side of the road and he'll take a note right there. He might be at home and see the shadow-fretted leaves moving across the wall. He will stop and pay attention. I honor that so deeply because when he does that and can write about it or sing about it, it does transport us. It can send us back to memories that we've had in our previous life And then say, why haven't I felt like that recently? If Joni Mitchell can feel that deeply, why can't I at this moment? There's a marvelous passage in here by the great Arctic explorer, Richard E. Byrd, who was supposed to meet six other scientists down at one of the stations at the South Pole for six months of studies, weather studies. And when he arrived, a telegram came in saying, one thing had led to another, and he was going to be alone for the next six months. The other scientists couldn't join him. And he knew after two or three days that he was courting hallucination and maybe even lose his mind. Can you imagine being alone, at literally at the bottom of the earth for six months? And very quickly, he decided to keep his mind active by collecting what he called his obs, which is an old Scottish shortened version of the word observation. And he filled up notebooks of observations about The birds, the fall of the snow, the ice flows, the star-streaked sky. And because of those observations, he was able to stay sane and even fall in love with his own solitude. I think that's a metaphor for what everybody in this book does. They are paying deep, soulful attention to the night. And if we read these, the effect can be similar to what Ezra Pound once said when he described a poem. He said, it's like a ball of light in your hand. A great song, a great painting, a great story, like R.B. is telling us, shines. I think it makes the darkness visible. Remember, that's a wonderful passage in Milton's Paradise Lost. That's the function of art and Mystics, to make the darkness visible. That's what I've tried to do in this book.
1: And, and you know, I, I'm just reminded of the fact it's it's not just being with that or holding that ball of light of that poem once in our hands. It's like... We, we get to partake of it over and over, and it continues. It's to nourish in some way.
2: Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> a, a dear friend of mine, actually the fellow I dedicated this book to, Alexander Elliott, he and his wife. Uh, Elliott was an art critic for Time Magazine for 15 years, the first American to interview Matisse and Picasso and so on. And when he left Time, he became friends with Joseph Campbell and Marcia Eliade, and they wrote mythology together. Later... He put together his memoirs, and the story that I picked for my book here is about Edward Hopper describing the creation of Nighthawks, which is one of the leitmotifs of this book. Night owls is fun, but Nighthawks has a little more of an edge to it. And, of course, that iconic painting of those lonely people in the cafe in New York City is, I believe, one of the images that will last about modern oh, America. as soon
1: as you mentioned it in the book, I could see the neon light shining on them. And I, I, and I, I didn't even remember that I knew that painting, but it just, oh. it goes into the heart.
2: See, and that's the power of Alexander's ability to evoke an image with words. There's an image that we have seen in our mind's eye. And what Alex writes in the piece is that Edward Hopper told him, I suppose what I've been doing with all of my painting is trying to render a picture of American urban loneliness. And I really wanted that. Literally in the halfway in the middle of the book, because that is the shadow side of this infatuation, the romance that some of us might have about the night. It's also a lonely time for many people. And I want this book to be a companion for those who may feel a little bit alone.
1: There's another piece that I want you to share with our listeners. It just absolutely made me cry. I just, was just burst into tears when I read it. And this was The Last Prince of Thorman by P.J. Curtis. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners. We talked earlier about being around the firelight, being around the fireplace, and here's a beautiful piece that depicts that.
2: Yes, P.J. Curtis is a dear friend of mine, a musicologist, as they say, in Ireland. He is a marvelous reservoir of the history of Irish music and also its migration to America, which ended up in Appalachia and became our country Western music. He is the master of telling that. And when I lead my literary tours around Ireland, he's one of our most popular speakers. He's also a, a beautiful writer and memoirist. And here's a piece of his called The Last Prince of Thorman," Sitting alone in my kitchen, with the clock ticking off the minutes, I have the urge to breathe in the bracing autumn night air. I step outside and look skyward. Suddenly, without warning, I am propelled back down the time tunnel of memory. In the turn of that moment, it's the early fifties. I'm once again ten years old on a clear, frosty night. I'm sitting by the campfire of old Rory Dub, Black Rory, the Traveler, the last Prince of Thorman. On this frosty November evening, as darkness fell, I passed close to the site where he traditionally made his camp for the night. From a distance, the perfume of the hazelwood fire wafts gently on the still air. The yellow glow from his campfire looks like a fallen star. In the half-light, he recognizes me and calls me out to join him. I approach the camp with caution. I was, I had to admit, very much in awe of this ragged old traveling man, this prince of his tribe, maybe even a king who now summoned me to his camp fire court. (laughs) He motions me to take a seat, pointing at an upturned butter box by the fire while he sits, a clay pipe protruding from his his remaining uneven teeth. His dark hooded eyes never leave me as I slowly move within the circle of the dancing amber firelight he smiles a slow smile and i accept from him a tin mug of hot sweet tea which he pours from his billy can (laughs) boiling on the glowing red embers he asks many questions what age are you do i like school do i read books books are better for you than bread rory says puffing hard on his clay pipe After a long silence, he points his stick upwards, prods the dark night air. There's my book, the book of the night sky. My eyes follow the stick from the glowing embers to the glowing star-spangled heaven spread above us. Every night, a different page. Every page, a different story to tell. Together in silence, we gaze deep into the frosty night air. Do you know Anything at all about stars? He turns to me, his eyes bright as the embers. I shake my head, I continue to look up at the carpet of diamond-hard stars twinkling overhead. There's the great bear. There's the plow. There's the seven sisters. There's the North Star, the traveler's friend. He sweeps his arm in a wide arc, and there's the Milky Way. My eyes follow the wide sweep of his arm. Do you know what it's made of, he asks. I shake my head, souls, the souls of the dead. His words chill me to the bone and seem to send a shiver through the arc of stars like a soft wind stirring wind chimes. His dreamy voice sounds far away as he continues, when we die, our souls fly up there to join all those who have gone before us and we get in line to enter heaven. Rory says, every time we see a star fall to earth, it's another soul allowed into heaven. We're all headed for a place on that road of souls. All my people have gone on ahead. They're there now waiting for me to join them. I'll be there a lot sooner than you, young fella. He jabs his stick at me. He looks upward again. And the better we are on this journey here, the brighter our souls will be as we glow on that journey. I'm sure you'll make a grand, bright star, young boy, but not before a long time with the help of the man above. We sit and sip the sweet tea and lapse into silent communication. The night deepens. He turns his face toward the sky. I watch the glow of the firelight. Every journey we make on this old earth is preparation for the longer journey which awaits us all. Our separate journeys, prince or priest or pauper, we're each on our own road and there's no road without its bends. Never forget that, lad. Later that night, warm and secure by the fire, my thoughts fill again with Rory. I longed to be back with him at his campfire, peering deep into the starry road of souls. I arrive early the next morning, return to the campsite and hopes to see him again and his Jenny, his pony, and his two dogs, but he's moved on. Things look different now in the cold morning light. The campfire looks strangely forlorn. The only sign of Rory's overnight stay are the ruts cut into the frosted earth by his cartwheels. And all that remains of the magic and majesty of his royal court of the previous night are a few still smoldering embers among the cold ashes. I never saw Rory again. I fancy now, as I look up at the Milky Way, it twinkles brighter than all the rest. The long years have separated Rory and me now. The years grow heavy on my shoulders. It probably won't be too long before I set off down that same starry road on my own last journey. How I long to sit again with Rory Dove to warm my hands by his campfire and watch it cast long shadows which dance across the universe. I long to drink again his sweet tea, to gaze into his wise old eyes, outward into space, to other lights and distant stars, and to remember.
1: Thank you so much for that reading. I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's the compiler and author of Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey in Today. If you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, philcousineau.net, and that's spelled phil, P-H-I-L, Cousineau, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U dot net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's the author and compiler of Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey in Today, as well as helping to compile the book The Soul and Spirit of Tea. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Phil in in that last reading, the man remembering his young self, his ten year old self, coming to that fire of that incredible traveler, uh, Roy Black Roy, the, who was king of his own court. There, the fire. What can you say about your book and your writings and what you're doing? to bring us all to the fire.
2: Recently, I interviewed a paleontologist who told me a a wonderful theory that I've heard different versions of in the past, but was compelled to think about it in a new way. The notion that fire is, of all inventions, the greatest invention of the human race, because it allowed us to protect ourselves from marauding animals. We know that. It also allowed us to cook food, which made us much healthier. Human beings were able to live longer. But this is the magic that I wish I could, t- could have talking to our old friend Joseph Campbell about. Before the fire, we were probably together for very short periods and living instinctually. But when we could stretch the day into the night and sit around a fire, We extended also our use of language, and probably monosyllabic communication turned into conversation. And when we were able to talk deep into the night, we moved from ordinary existence into philosophizing. What did the day mean? Which turns into culture and civilization, The books that we have, the art that we have, is the extension that fire gave us to go deeper into the night and also deeper into heart, spirit, and soul. And... I've tried to have a little echo of that in this book. I like thinking that it's, uh, the medieval people used to call these noctuaries. Now there's another great revival of a word. You you come up with the great (laughs)
1: words, noctuaries.
2: And I, I love the idea for a thousand years, people have collected prayers, poems, chants, songs that bring back, remind us of the majesty of the night. Actually, not just days, but night poetry, in the same way that we might uh, play Oscar Peterson's Night Train on a night when we really want to evoke the melancholy of, of our evening. And in that sense, I wanted to make this collection, Burning the Midnight Oil, a gift that allows people to see night also as a journey. If you've noticed, this is a leitmotif since I worked with Joe so many years ago. My work with him on the hero's journey became the traveler's journey with the art of pilgrimage, which then became the creative journey with my book, Stoke in the Creative Fires. It's one of the all-time metaphors. Jorge Borges once said, we only have a handful of profound archetypal metaphors. Time is like a river, right? Yes. The night is like a journey, And that allows us to see behind us, but also ahead of us. When I lead my groups around Ireland, recently leading one of my groups around Ireland, I found that the old Celtic word for pilgrimage was tura, T-U-R-A. Do you remember your grandmother singing tura, lura, lura, lura? That old lullaby in Old Gaelic was really a song that you would sing to a beloved child a grandchild wishing him or her well on the long journey through the night and hopefully arriving alive and well at dawn, isn't that majestic? That is so oh, majestic! My now, goodness. now
1: that just takes us to one of your own pieces in the book, um, "Driving with Jack at Midnight." Here, you're you're a, a father. Your young son is there with you in the car. So, please share that with us.
2: This is an example of one of those nights where I have to walk my own talk. I teach creativity, and I'm constantly trying to say it's about vigilance. It's attention, and it's also a reverence for the signals that are always being sent up by the world that wants to shake us up, wake us up, pay attention to those. And in this particular instance, my son Jack was three, and we had gone to visit my mom in Sonoma, And on the way back, it was quite dark. There's a long stretch of road between Sonoma and San Francisco without any streetlights. I like the moodiness of that, but this one particular night, I realized it was terrifying my son. And what he was saying to me I had to take down mentally very quickly, and when we reached the main highway, I wrote down half a dozen images, a few lines of his exact dialogue with me, and when I got home, I wrote it out in this poem in five minutes. And that was paying attention, really respecting my relationship with him. Driving with Jack at Midnight. We drove in darkness, the amber lights of Sonoma, receding in my rearview mirror, shadows leaping like thieves from eucalyptus trees along the night road. How do you lead a child into the dark forces of night and then back again? What can you say to your squirming son after he watches soldiers shoot children on the evening news? What can you say when he turns your bones blue by asking you from the back seat of the car, Please, Papa, hold my hand. It's dark all around me. The word dark had never sounded so ominous. I reached across the back seat, feeling the velvet darkness on my fingertips, and I clasped his trembling hand, and in my best tough and tender voice... I held on to him, and he whispered as if to reassure me. Just until it gets light again, Papa. Driving one-handed, I listened for the reassuring sound of his sleep. I remember the moment I held him for the first time, all crinkled and crying, blinking, and trying to open his gummed-up eyes, startled by all that light after all that dark hurtling home past the long abandoned railroad tracks and farmland now lost to grapevines. I spin the green glowing dial of the car radio and I hear Bruce Springsteen wailing like a lost locomotive how he'd drive all night to be with the love of his life because he loved her heart and soul. Heart and soul. Heart and soul. And hearing that lonesome moan. I sing along until I hear my dead father's voice vibrating in my own throat. I sing until I hear traces of my voice in my son's as he cries, Papa, how much longer, how much longer is it going to be dark? Only then did the words spring free the short lie that I told to tell the longer truth. Don't worry, buddy. We'll be home soon. I won't let the darkness hurt you.
1: Whoa, so that... So this is
2: an, an example. I, just, I want to expand on for, for just a second there. There's the autobiographical, which we can all do. We can tell an incident. We can reveal an experience to somebody. And we do need to do that. We do need to share our ordinary experience. But my agenda has always been to hunt, to go in there, to polish, to go deeper, to go deeper. As Rilke told the young poet, you're not getting published because you haven't gone deep enough. And so I I work this, I work it, I work it. And then the line came to me that really makes the poem work on a universal level. I won't let the darkness hurt you. Now all parents can leap in at that one one moment, and it's not just a piece about me and my son or just me and the dark night, it's about all of us who have felt afraid. And all of us who have, maybe you've had to hold tight more tightly to your wife because you're walking through a dangerous part of a city and you lean over, I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. We'll make it to the car. You see what I'm saying there? That's the idea. Can you go deep enough to reach the universal so other people can be touched? And I'm willing to put in that work, sometimes 40, 50 drafts of a poem, sometimes of a book, because I'm not satisfied with being too superficial. I want to keep going down. Why? Why? Because people like James Joyce, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Emily Dickinson have hit me in such a universal way that time collapses. How did they know I felt this way? That's what I've tried to achieve in this this book. Nighttime is mysterious, and we can feel alone, sometimes suicidal, let's be honest, suicidal, melancholic, deeply depressed, cynical, or the word of the day, snarky. Mm. Snarkiness comes up, especially in a lot of l- literally late night television. It becomes snarkier and snarkier.
1: It does. It does, and it it doesn't serve the soul in that way. But to pick up your book or to pick up a book of poetry, pick up Mary Oliver or someone in just a Rumi Coleman Barks's uh, translations of Rumi, and you just it takes you to a wholly different place. And wholly, holy, H O L Y, holy. Different place.
2: Beautiful. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's really what I'm trying to evoke here. There is something holy about the night. Um, you feel, excuse me, I think you feel more whole if there is some way where you can gain access to it. And I always go back to that Van Gogh passage where he's wrestling with that wonderful painting, the Café de Nuit, the night café, or the starry, starry night. And he's dissatisfied. He can't get to the soul of it. And he repaints these over and over and over again during the day. And then he realizes he's got to paint these at night if he's really going to evoke the night. I think that's magical. It's just it's very, magical. It's magical,
1: <laughs> magical. Going back to your young, younger days when you were outside of Detroit and working at, at, in an auto factory, you saw a graffiti on the wall. It was just so beautiful. Uh, and it was called, it, it takes all day to get up and all night to get down. takes all day to get up and all night to get down. And uh, so... Say say why that moved you so, Phil.
2: There was an expression on Friday nights in which we would all be punching our time cards. and What are you going to do this weekend? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I remember one night, one of these old black blues players who worked a few hours in the factory, then he played in the great blues clubs in Detroit at night. He says... I do one for the man and one for me, one for the man and one for me. And what he was saying was he put his 40 hours in during the week to support himself and his family. But the man, which is the system and the bosses, cannot touch you once you punch out. That's your time at the heart of this whole book, that the night world in some mysterious way is the missing piece You can live so just at the top, just plain surviving, living on instinct during the day. But it's at night when we gather with our friends and our families. We have meals. We play music. We share stories. As Rumi said, nighttime is the time to share our secrets with each other.
1: I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's the author of Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey into Day. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's the author of Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey into Day, which is a compilation of poems, poetry, of just in his own writing. It's just a wonderful book. But I'd like to switch... Tracks right now. <laughs> we'll call it switching tracks. We're going to move that train over that over to another track. And I, I'd like to talk about tea because this is another recent book that you've edited. And a, there's a film called The Meaning of Tea that you've that you've helped with, and it's called The Soul and Spirit of Tea: Twenty One Tea Inspired Essays for the Early Twenty First Century. Tea. I mean, here we go. What is the meaning of tea? Are we in the sunset of the tea, tea culture, or is something really happening with tea these days?
2: A number of years ago, I was teaching a course on creativity at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and there was a fellow in the front row who was wrapped with attention for three days. And at the end of the seminar, walked right straight up to me, said, I'm Scott Hoyt. I would love to do what you do, make films, write books. It sounds like so much fun. And without hesitation, I asked him, what is the single passion in your life? That's the way you cut through things. Everybody wants to write and make movies, right? What is your passion? And without hesitation, he said, tea. And he said with such verve and such passion, I knew he had the endurance to actually complete something. You have to measure this very quickly. And I got involved with him. I helped him set up a film company. He went off and made this beautiful film, The Meaning of Tea, which I was a story consultant on. We made one companion book for that in which we interview people. What does it mean to you? Just don't give me the tonnage of how much tea you harvested. What does it mean? And I, I learned that there are 5,000 varietals of tea tea around the world that the world is as complex as the world of wine and yet there's another element there that i have become quite charmed with that tea is about the Tao. it's about flowing with life there's a rhythm of life that you get into when you begin to appreciate tea and tea leads to conversation and companionship There are tea arts of music and painting, calligraphy, and so on. Well, I've become quite smitten with that, and I've cut my coffee consumption quite down. (laughs) I do need my edge, but I also have to learn how to smooth it out when I'm completing my work. And that's how tea has affected me so deeply. I begin things, and then I drink these beautiful teas from around the world, and that smooths me out so I can finish so much of my work. So inspired with that, we continued on. We've just published this book of 21 essays called The Soul and Spirit of Tea, where we go into the science. There's a great deal of science that describes how great tea is for your, your blood, your breathing, your heart, all of that, but also the social aspects. My favorite anecdote in the entire book comes from Arun Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson. I asked him to write an essay because I had seen a famous photo of Mahatma Gandhi in peace negotiations, I believe, with, um, uh, with one of the leaders of, of Great Britain when they were negotiating the British withdrawal from India. And there was a huge samovar, a huge samovar of tea. And I did some research and found out that in all of his negotiations, Gandhi always drank tea. And he expected those he was in negotiation with to drink drink tea. Imagine the immensity of that. He knew it would calm people down rather than rev them up. I thought that was quite wonderful. So I said, Arun, could you write a little bit about that? And he did. That's quite beautiful. But it was short. So I said, we need to flesh this out. Um, Did you ever follow in your grandfather's footsteps? Remember when he got on the trains and he went and he visited the rural India? Did you do that? Yes. What happened? So, he says, I took the train, following in my grandfather's footsteps, trying to find the mystery of of, of India. And on our first stop, along the platform, there were all these peasants who were selling tea. And I went to the very first one, and I asked for some tea. And this poor peasant looked up at me, and he said, would you like 100-mile tea? 200 mile tea or 300 mile tea. <laughs> <laughs> and of course what he was referring to is a weak, medium or strong because he knew people were on the t- on the train sometimes for days and days and days. And then Arun goes on to write that this is a measure of the respect that tea has for nourishing soul and spirit. It's not how can you say, the utilitarian Western concept we have of coffee. It's going to give me an edge. It's going to make me edgier and more clever. It'll uh, help me uh, with my business world and all. And that's in some way the way that the soul of tea blends in a beautiful way, so to speak, into my work with the night. All of us have to find some kind of rhythm. When are you at your best? Are you a morning person or a night person? What brings the best out of you? Is it coffee, tea, wine, or beer? I'm serious about this. What kind of music do you have to play so that you can find that still point in your dance, as T.S. Eliot wrote about so beautifully. If you can find that, you are a vibrant part of the culture. You're contributing to the culture. You're encouraging others, which is what I try to do with all of my work, to find that level of the soul.
1: You know, Phil, I, I notice when I give an invitation to people, I I don't say, oh, let's sit down with a cup of coffee. I, I always say... And let's share a cup of tea. let's let's have some tea together. Let's get together for tea. And I don't know. for me, it you said early on, it's sociable. There's something very even spiritual about sitting down and pausing with tea and the pouring of it is, I know my sister took me to a shop in Seattle called Remedy Tea. I had never seen anything like it. They had a wall of jars. I mean, a huge wall that was like 12 foot tall and maybe 25 feet across with jar after jar after jar of all of those different flavors that you're talking about, all those different teas. And, and then they would serve them in these beautiful heated pots, and, and, and you'd sit down, and there was a little ritual with it. It was a spiritual experience. Do you, is, is, is this coming more to the fore? Are you noticing Something here?
2: Yes. A dear friend of mine, uh, James Norwood Pratt, who also lives in North Beach, where I live, just a few blocks away. This He's is in San Francisco. In San Francisco. Now. Francisco. Yeah. He's one of the mavens, a great old word, of tea, uh, one of the great tea experts in the world. And he calculates that in the past 15 years, the sale of tea has gone up 700%. Oh. More people drinking tea than at any time in human history. And coffee sales are actually declining. It's, it's as if we have reached our peak with that business. We have to be faster, faster, faster. That's the speed demon <laughs> at work. I think we're trying to level out. And the whole sociability behind it, the the fact that you can go to tea houses that are trying to lull us in the best way. Who was it? Um, I think it was Thoreau said, when in doubt, move slowly. The soul moves slowly. Spirit moves fast, but the soul moves slowly. And this is often what happens to us when we do stretch the night out on that long journey. Time, I believe, starts to slow down. So you put rhythm and blues or jazz music on. This this is the time to read poetry, I believe. Late at night when you can savor the language.
1: So in in tea, can you make any comment about like now we have all these tea bags or instant tea and i i know that we have a whole drawer full of instant tea here but but i was so thankful when you arrived that we had a couple of loose infusion teas a green tea and a chai tea and can you say something about that
2: yes roy fong who runs a, the imperial tea court in the ferry building in san francisco is a wonderful source on this. He's a Taoist priest and also a tea master. And as he is wont to say, the the tea bag is the bane of the modern world because you're trying to accelerate something that is pleading with you to slow down, right? So to do it properly and get the most out of it, you need a, a ritual where you pay attention to boiling the water. You pay attention to warming the teapot. You slow down, you take a breath, and you savor the moment in which you pour tea for someone that you're with. You make eye contact, you have an agreement that you're gonna talk about things that actually matter. That's the friendship that can be formed within the, the tea circle, so to speak. But if you have to resort to the tea bag, everything is going to be accelerated. And I think the soul starts to re- recoil when that, when that happens.
1: Well, it's, it's a really a reminder in this fast-paced world that there, we can pause and take... Uh, I, I think in England, there's still that, that ritual of the afternoon tea. I mean, I, I'm assuming that, that some people still hold to that. And and the, the reminder of that in our own lives. Yes.
2: And also the combination I've discovered in China and in Japan, Sri Lanka, the great tea countries, and it's slowly happening here, that there is a whole realm of poetry that is written under the influence of tea. And in some circles, if you're sharing tea, you have a ritualized tea ceremony, you read and recite poetry and short stories to each other. You might compose painting together. These these are ways in which I think we can stretch out the night and honor that whole other half of life.
1: Phil, thank you so much for being with us on New Dimensions.
2: (laughs) It's always a pleasure, Justine. Thank you.
1: I've been speaking with Phil Cousineau. He's, as I said earlier, a renaissance man, a filmmaker, a writer of many, many books. His most recent is Burning the Midnight Oil, Illuminating Words for the Long Night's Journey into Day, and also uh, edited The Soul and Spirit of Tea. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, philcousineau.net. That's phil, P-H-I-L, Cousineau, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U dot net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number
0: 3492. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.